Ayanushla Sakuinikor, Erangetalshias, Sisminum, Mawikas of Wallace, and Firkin Falsha Falsha Kalaga Dadership Room, as may chirk the Stockhog Sakohoe, Nahoraja Shabal Metarist, Establop Agus, Omahriamak, Mila Mila Wikas, Tigim Gama, Degas, and Tovta Toy Pint, Lesion Skull Shagas. Toshin ahent nehiana ont nehiana osta on kursi clear or so kursi shivalt in new. May I first, first of all say what a great pleasure it is to be here. And I, as I have just said, I'm so grateful for the warmth of the reception. And, and also it had its unique features. The very, very wonderful music from inside and outside, and I think it is a great, great, wonderful thing in a school to so that as you come in, to see the piano in prime position, and also to listen to the lovely music. I have in recent times been revising my speeches into not just a matter of keeping up to date, but because words are so precious and time is so important. The first thing I want to say is, of course, uh, Sabina, my wife, has a chest infection at the moment, and she's getting ready to do a big event for Cope and Galway, so that's why she wasn't able to travel with me. But the next time we're in Kinsale, we, uh, we'll drop in again. Uh, it's my second visit to your school, although my first, my kid, Kian Mahukhtrana, here. I enjoy very much returning to Kinsale. I came here many years ago, uh, visiting Headley uh, in the Spinnaker uh, about matters poetic. And you should be very well aware that you have one of the finest poets writing and uh, now living in your vicinity again, Derek Mahan, who is at the peak of his writing. His recent poems have been among the very, very, very best and a great contribution. I think that you are so blessed, all of you, to be in such a very beautiful place facing the sea and also carrying with you that wonderful inheritance of it is a, the association of the people of Ireland with the sea through Kiantolo, through, kin, uh, through Kinsale. Head of the sea, it's a great uh, title to have. I also was struck by these inspiring speeches I've, I've just heard. Uh, I think very, very much on the, the history of the school. This is a very positive school. I remember when I visited first being struck by, in a way, how open it was. I've just had the opportunity to speak into the, to the Leaving Cert class. So if I repeat myself leaving search class, it isn't that I've gone doddery or anything like that. <laughs> it is just that there are new people here. Uh, I, I looked down and I thought back myself to uh, 1955, uh, when I was at St. Flannan's College. And I said, oh, maybe I should think about that. Uh, we didn't have free secondary education in Ireland until the 1960s. And uh, in my case, uh, half my family could afford to go to second level education. And between 1955 and 1960, 250,000 people left Ireland, mostly to work in England. 
never less than 55,000 a year. If you were a girl, you went to England and you probably worked in the different vocations. Maybe many of them went into, the nur into nursing. And they became the finest nurses working in one of the great, great vehicles of humanity with which that century was blessed, the British National Health Service. If you were a male, you very often worked on the buildings and there are many, many songs uh, uh, about this. So what you had in the second level, it was a great effort to get to second level school. My, my brother and, and, and I did. My sisters immigrated at the age of 19 to England. They were twins. They will be 80 years, in a couple of, 80 years of age in a couple of days' time. One living now in Manchester, one who has come home. They were working for 30 shillings a week. Um, British Rail would provide a, a, a ticket from the nearest railway station. They would offer you accommodation if you worked in their cafeterias. And they sent money home from England to us, who were having a very hard time that time in Carter Clare. Generations earlier, my grandfather, Michael Higgins and so on, was one of a family of seven. He was a child during the famine, and in 1852, as a plowman, he immigrated to Australia at 1852 with his sister. And of that family of seven, five eventually went to Australia. One of them, uh, Sir David Higgins, who organized the British Olympics, the purchase of Dan Ford, in the long cycle of things. His, his great-grandfather and my grandfather are brothers. But it is simply to say, Irish people have been going away, and Irish people have been sending back remittances to their families at home and enabling others to follow in every phase of Irish history. And one of the things I said, I would also say to first years and second years and third years, is that in those circumstances in 1955, I got, somebody gave us money so that I could be a boarder for two years. My brother cycled to the other school, the Christian Brothers School, and then we cycled eight and a half miles every day in and out to the school. And education was terribly important. I worked then in the, that time, nobody went to third level education, except a very, very small number. And then I worked in the Espiza Clark, and then I was writing at the time, and then I got a gift of 200 pounds. I resigned my job, went to England, worked again. And because there were no grants of any kind, I in fact actually worked every summer. My Garrod O'Tuhig and I left on the same boat and we would come back then, and both of us, in our cases, Garrod and myself, had to finish first or second in the faculty every year, and we got a scholarship. And that is how we became university teachers. And then because of my background and everything, I went into public life with the particular views that I had, and I would work, in, I worked on scholarships in the United States and at Manchester University, and I taught at university. I say this to people to say, I would say to everyone, a boy and girl here in many cases, that is who the President of Ireland is, and that is his story. And therefore, I would suggest to you to have courage about what you're doing. There will be exams and other things along the way, but what is important is to think of the values that you're getting in this school, and very important, the values that you are for yourself. There's something wonderful about this, about the right to be happy, the right to learn.
and also the right to be different, because every one of you, these are very, very important, uh, these are very, very important values. I have also, in this visit to Cork, uh, to say something quite extraordinary, I want to thank a newspaper. And <laughs> I want to thank the examiner for the coverage of my visit to Cork yesterday, when I was speaking about intergenerational justice. But can I say to you, before I turn to that, you know, when I was listening to the sister talking about 1840, when they came to establish, the order came uh, to establish education. 1840, five or six years, just, people think that the famine, which is 1845 to 1847, but it was well known, the extraordinary poverty into which Ireland had sunk. And therefore, I think I have the greatest respect for all those who provided education, where no other sorts of education uh, uh, was available. And also in relation to something else, I was last night at the showing of a film in Blackpool on the greening of Africa, on the Great Green Wall. And this was really sponsored very much by the Society of African Missions. And when you think of where we are, just to think of this, that when, I had, when you look at images of Lake Chad, that great lake on the continent of Africa, which you will see in the geography maps, there's no map yet that has shown the degree to which it has shrunk. It has shrunk 90%. And from that area, that's the area of Boko Haram, it's from that area, in fact, as desertification threatens to take over the Sahel. And as suddenly people, for example, their pastors, moving their animals from one place to another, conflicts are emerging. And between now and uh, 2045, next, within 25 years, 60 million people will have to leave that area unless, in fact, we have sustainable development. And it is happening because of climate change and because of the actions of the developed world. And those 60 million people, people are planting trees to try again, if you like, and restore uh, a relationship with nature. And indeed, in relation to the belief systems and the religious systems and all of the different attempts at transcendence which we must respect in the world, sometimes they say, God is good, and so on. But they pray also, they know very well, that what the travesty that has been climate change is about a broken connection with nature. There was a time when, in fact, the water and the trees and the biodiversity life and all of it enabled people to have a life near their home. And I think this is very important, that this young generation, I have so much hope for that, because it now has information. And it's so important that the science and technology be not used uh, for to marginalise people, destroy people, it's happening at the moment, or to circulate hate, but really to be a tool for giving you ever more faster information. No generation on the planet, again, will ever be able to say they didn't know about climate change and its consequences on the poorest people, on the people who made the least contribution to it. And it is possible, therefore, to move to a different balance between human resources and limited resources, and how to live with sufficiency. And if you looked across at all the better versions of what all of the prophecies have said, it has been about the importance of sufficiency. Somebody was at the end of the film about the Great Green War said, at the end of your life, what will you leave after it? Manning Kerry once said to me, I never saw a, a trailer coming after a hearse. 
How much do you want? How, do we how did we move from sufficiency to insatiability? And that is why, indeed, uh, Principal, you are right, I have been speaking so often lately about matters of the economy. There is no future for any of us in relation, I will be gone, but there is no future that is sustainable unless we recast ecology, natural resources, our behavior also in relation economy, and also issues of justice. Yesterday in Cork, and that's why I was thanking the paper for carrying my speech, because earlier this week, I brought over to Dublin, to Oris and Uthron, two leading patent thinkers in this new way. Professor Mariana Mazzucato has been speaking about how we need the state and its private partners to have a whole new version of economics. And the other is, sometimes people would say to me, you look at all these books that are in your offices, is there any one book you'd recommend? And I recommend a man who is the same age as myself, Professor Ian Goff, whose book is Heat, Greed and Human Need. He has worked all his life on human need, and he's saying something very important. We can't deal with these issues that I have suggested as green issues only. They are issues that are connected to the economy. And in the same way as our grandparents, and that grandfather of mine who stayed here with his sister, and the others who went to Australia, they needed to be literate not only to get a job, but it was literacy was needed to give us democracy, to give us the vote and to give us parliament. And now all the children will need to be literate in economics and in fiscal things. So as to be able, so as to stop. Every now and again people say, all this stuff, people, when I was a minister, and on through my life as president, people will say, well, what are the markets saying? And the suggestion is that this is something that only a very short number of, small number of people can understand. We have to break that down, because what has been happening is that those who have been making vast fortunes, how 1%, for example, in the United States can control so much of the receipts of the economy, is not because they're investing in anything useful. They're buying their own stock. They're investing in their own speculation. They're creating a false economy. And we had the result of this already in relation to 2008. So we must be literate in economics so as to be able to say our people, in fact, actually deserve, in fact, a balance between what is responsible intergenerationally and what is good economics. Good economics. For example, in the North American continent, Professor Stein and I wrote about this before, there is not one university in the United States or Canada teaching 12% on the history of economic thought. They're being taught they are one-trick ponies, taught metrics of how to fiddle, if you like, with speculation, but no knowledge of political economy, no knowledge of the great social movements, no knowledge of poverty, and so on. And this must be confronted and end. And the third issue things that must be combined is an issue of justice. Because now everyone wants to say, we want to do something about climate change, and we have to make a transition. But there will be people who will have to leave occupations and go to new ones. That has to be taken into account. But there's a fundamental principle. The developed world, in many cases, you take, for example, between now and the next 20 years, 
There are 40,000 new executive jets on order. Now, should people, the 60 million people starving in the Sahel, have to wait for people to come to some form of conscience about owning an executive jet? Must the people who are relying on the basics of life have to pay the same price as those, for example, who are responsible for the tra tragedy that we are living through? Obviously, that's an issue of justice. So what we must do in our advocacy with each other is to combine consciousnesses of the importance of nature, the gift of nature, the importance of literacy and economics, and the importance of the justice issue. For example, is it, can you, could you live as I'm now 78, is it, must another 50 million people die in extreme hunger? Now people sometimes say, but we're winning the gate, we're winning the battle against global hunger. Why? The measure they have is $1.95 a day, which would be the equivalent of 25 families in the United Kingdom living on one minimum wage of one person. If you say that people should have $3.95, you're nearly a billion people suffering from nutrition and starving. And if you raise it to $5.95 a day, you get the fact nearly 3 billion, 3 billion people with no rights of education, clean water, or indeed invented shelter. We are not winning the battle against global poverty, but we're pouring an awful lot of money through foundations and others into suggesting that we are because we have less people under $1.95. And that is being used to undermine those of us who have been advocating all our lives against global poverty and against global inequality. So it's a time, I apologize for speaking so strongly about this, but it is a time for us to be forthright, I think, on these issues. I come to what I came here to do, which is to celebrate you on the kind of way you are running your education. I congratulate teachers and parents and boards of management, founders of this school. I congratulate above all else the, children, the youngsters who stay cheerful and stay positive. Because the interesting side of what, what I have described, I speak about what happens in physics, say, in a subject. When you have a fundamental change in the assumption, say, this is a paradigm shift. And what I'm advocating for in my speeches now, as I did at the United Nations a couple of weeks ago and in Greece two weeks ago, is for a paradigm shift in how we look at the connection between nature, economy, and justice. And if we achieve that, you will be, in fact, actually, doing many of the things that are the most being taught in this school. There will be a shorter working week. There will be more time for conversation. There will be more time for reading. It will be not only about matters of making yourself useful, involved in things that you don't understand. There will be import as equal importance to say the person who looks after another person is, in fact, doing something extraordinarily valuable. Issues of empathy will begin to surface again, rather than the individualism, which is a corrosion of the heart of the world. The idea that the highest achievement in life, as I visited in New York and elsewhere, is to arrive in a gated community, where you have, in fact, private security, 
because you see all of the other people outside as waiting to come in and take what you have at any time. That dysfunctional form of connection between economy and society can be replaced by you in your time with values like inclusivity and cooperation and insistence on science and technology being used with a sense of responsibility of using your science and technology to counter hate and misinformation. And you see the importance of facts. I gave those facts about my family to say how important it is that we look at our history and look how we did it. Everybody who comes here, irrespective of their ethnic origin, irrespective of whatever, is welcome. We say every now and again we trot it out in the shadow of each other we live. Well, if we are, let's practice it by just immediately we hear any of the suggestions that contradict that basic value at the heart of a migrant people, the Irish people, we put a stop to it. In this school, as I said, there are not only these good values, the right to be happy, the right to be different, the right to learn, but also I so want to, I met so many of you every year at the Young Scientist Exhibition. And it's a great, great tribute to teachers and students and to parents and others who really that you are one of the highest participants proportionately year after year. And then again, I think as well, to be able to say, I remember I mentioned my time in, in St. Flannan's, we had two aims only, to win the Hearty Cup in hurling and to win the gold medal in Greek. <laughs> and after they gave glucose to the hurling team, because people believed that it was magic, and then they would pick after the insert four students, including myself, who were to be trained to get the gold medal in Greek. But one of the things about it is, is that I think to be a pleasure to open, to, to unveil a piece of sculpture, that is so important and that it contains those important words that it does. And I think it's so important that your principal mentioned that the emphasis on the importance of history. So the values of your school, those declared in that proclamation, are wonderful, laudable values. A society of compassion, solidarity, collectivity, equality, kindness, and human decency. And yet, let these appear a kind of soft things that are being pushed at anyone. They are the basis of joy. Joy in the world, joy with other people. And I think the greatest achievement will be when we've moved past this extreme individualism. And you know, I, people mentioned about my work during the commemorations. I have often thought back in it because we're moving into the most difficult period now, how to in interpret the civil war. My, the civil war in my case, my, I was reared by my uncle and aunt who were on the, the free state side of the argument. My father was on the Republican side. He spent 1923 in the Curra in Tintown. But we will have to, this is the exercise. It's people taught compassion and understanding on narrative hospitality, of being able to lift others. You are so lucky to be in a school that has these values. And I, I'm so pleased as president 
and I thank you for your patience in listening uh, so long to me. I'm coming just to the same in many, many cases here. But sometimes will people say, but all that stuff is beyond us. It's happening somewhere else, all this climate change and whatever. It's affecting our farmers. We're having floods. We're having wettest, coldest winters. We're having complete unpredictability in relation uh, to planning and agricultural activity. There's been an increase in severity and frequency of storms and so forth. So I don't think we need bother anymore dealing with people who are denying it. We, can, we know if they look at any images at all on what is happening in relation, in relation to the Arctic. But as we end, this is how it all is. Committing to such a vision then on fish, Maraluic and Privedia, as we would say to that, all the small things matter as well. Kindness is built out of your most immediate context. Empathy is based upon the people who are near you, locality, about extending it to others and making it ever wider. And I think as well, all the small things we will do that reduce excess, that change patterns of consumerism, that also are act more responsibility, the opportunities we take to talk to each other about all of this. I think all of that will be very, very important. And therefore, this is the whole point about it. It is not about each person making themselves individually useful to something that they don't understand in the world, so that they sort of acquire such an income that people will, in fact, that the only thing that people will say is, how wealthy are you? I looked at a program recently in many cases, and it was like, you know, in the same way as Alcoholics Anonymous, as people should set up an organization for unhappy billionaires who are unable to say when you have enough. And then I thought very much about the woman from, the, from Senegal who was said to Madrid, she said, and when you end, what, how will it matter? It matters that it is great to be alive today and it must be wonderful to be alive with all the opportunities and skills that you have and the fantastic opportunities for change and all that you can achieve, not for yourselves only, but for everyone else and all the joy that you will have in relation to that and all, if you like, the benefit we will all get from diversity and tolerance and having time and listening to music and doing the things of the spirit and realizing that there is such a thing as a sufficiency so that at the end you will be able to say that was a great life and that's what i wish for all of you